read. And uh, as, you're, as you're doing that, let's, uh, let me just pray. Hallelujah for the cross, Father. Hallelujah for your Son. Hallelujah for him who died for us. And I pray that we will boast, that we will rejoice, we will glory in the cross this morning, that we have, that we will now feed on the cross and all that it means for us. And I pray this for the glory of your name, the glory of your Son. Amen. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a title for you, and no, it's not a spelling mistake. I know how often I'm used to making spelling mistakes, but it's not yes or satis est. Does anybody know what that language is? If you can speak in tongues, then uh, this will be a good one to uh, have a go at. Anybody? Latin is a very, very good answer. Uh, I've been brushing up on my Latin recently. Someone asked me in the week, what do I do in my spare time? Now you know exactly what I do. Not. Are there any Latin linguists out there? Put up your hand. Any, any Latin majors? Any PhDs in Latin? No? You did? All right. Spanish queen. Here we go. First one for you. Tell me what this is in, um, in English. There it is. Uh, can you see it? Veni. Vidi Vici. All right, what is that, Caroline? Oh, very good, very good. I came, I saw, I conquered, but I'll give you an easy one just to get you into the flow of things. I think this comes out of Dead Poet Society. Carpe diem. Seize the day. And a very, very popular one, especially if you're into philosophy and that sort of stuff. And uh, how about uh, this one? Cogito ego sum. I think, therefore I am. So, what does that mean? Jesus satis est. Hmm. Well, it will become clear and uh, we'll, we'll get to it. In December 2021, we had a look at Isaiah 53 as a whole. If you've been part of our Connect groups this last term, we have looked at Isaiah 53, three verses at a time. And one last time this morning, I want us to go at Isaiah 53. And I'm going to give it to you, uh, four headings, they're all in Latin, and uh, some of them are a question, you can figure it all out. So here it comes, my first one, and it's in the form of a question, Satisne est Jesus, and you know what the last word means, don't you? You'll figure out the rest. The Bible has how many books? Not a trick question. 66. How many chapters does Isaiah have? 66. If you split the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's 39 and 27. If you were to divide Isaiah into two sections, you would have 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. Now, I tell you that not because that means that's all inspired, but the correlation between the two is, is, is absolutely remarkable. And it's been rightly said that if the only part of the Bible that we had, if we only had Isaiah 53, that's all we had, that would be enough to lead us to Jesus Christ and the magnificent salvation that he has given to us. Isaiah 53 has been called the fifth gospel. Why? Because it contains every single facet of the life and work of Jesus Christ. If you've been part of our connect groups over this last term, here's how the book has sort of broken up, I hope. Here we go. In Isaiah 53, 1 to 3, we saw the scorning 
of the servant. In verses 4 to 6, there was the substitution of the servant. In Isaiah 53, 7 to 9, the silence of the servant. And then from verses 10 to 12, we had the sovereign exaltation of the servant. But the aspect that I want to look at this morning a little bit more deeply, Isaiah 53, 4 to 6, in, in what is known in theological terms as the penal substitution of Jesus Christ. And if you've got the passage open in front of you, you will see the penal substitution of Christ wrapped up in and around absolutely anything. And if you're not sure what penal substitution means, I'll show it to you in just a moment. Got the Bible, it's going to come up on the screen. Let me show you the penal substitution of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried whose sorrows? Ours. Ours. Have a look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him and then by his wounds we are healed. If you go down into the second half of verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Into verse 8, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. Go down to verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Into verse 11, and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, for he bore for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is what penal substitution is. It says this. It says that God gave himself in the person of Jesus Christ to suffer instead of us. That God in Christ was taking upon himself the death, the punishment, and the curse on humanity as the penalty for our sin. That's what penal substitution is. But the question that I want to ask is this, was it enough? Was it enough? You see, penal substitution is the very guts of the gospel. If you take penal substitution out, if you take out Jesus dying for us, for our sins, then you, you just rip the gospel apart. You've got no gospel. There's no salvation. There's no good news. This is the grace of the gospel. It is all of Christ for all of us, which is why Paul wrote these words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He said, But even if we or even an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, other than the one preached to you, let them be under God's curse. In the Greek, it's anathema. Let them be an anathema. Let them be cursed. Heaven forbid you preach another gospel, something different. As we've already said, and I'll say it again, he's repeating himself. If anybody preaches to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. The wisdom of the world, and we're going to have a look at that a little bit more closely over Easter. The wisdom of the world says this, that either Christ on the cross means nothing for our salvation, or he's not enough. Christ on the cross is either not needed, or he's not sufficient. Christ on the cross is a useless act, or we have to do something to add to it. I want you to imagine for a moment that you need life-saving heart surgery. 
I want you to imagine that you need a, a heart transplant. That's the only way you are going to live. You have this heart transplant, and the operation is done, and it is successful. And after all is done and you are well, you say something like this, Oh, well, the heart transplant wasn't that necessary. Or you say, well, oh, you know, it was good, but actually somehow that transplant was deficient in some way. Or imagine after you are done and well, you say, well, I'll take the credit for that heart transplant in some way. Can you imagine? But that's exactly what the religious wisdom of the world is, and that is exactly what the, the modus of the devil is. You see, the devil really wants you to take some little credit for what Jesus has done, or he wants you to believe that there is just a little bit, there's a little iota of something that you can do to add to what he did at the cross. Have a look at this in Galatians 2.22. And this is, this is the Apostle Paul. He is, he is fired up. He says, I do not say, set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through the law, then what? Then Christ died? For nothing. If you could get there by keeping the law, if you could get to salvation by doing good works, if, if, if there was even a little iota of something that we could do to add to that which Christ has done, then Christ died for nothing. It was a useless, pitiful waste of time. You know, there are some theological hills that Christians want to die on today. And they should. But there are Christian hills that Christians want to die on that go something like from Christian freedoms to Waterloo baptisms to spectacular, spectacular end times theologies to church governments. But there is a hill far away upon which a cross stood and upon which we should be prepared to die. And that is Jesu, Jesus Satis Est. It was enough. It was enough. You might be someone here this morning that's grown up in a home or you've grown up with someone that was a particular person of significance. And, and for that person, in whatever form, your performance was never enough. Maybe for you it was a parent that was always saying, you know, your grades are not just good enough. You got a C, you need to get a B. You need to, to work harder. Maybe for you it was sport where that parent or that person of significance was just pushing you further and further and further. I was watching a movie, movie recently about the true story of, of a man with cerebral palsy. His name was Huawei. He was from Hong Kong. And he went on to, to win 12 medals at the Paralympic Games from 1996 to 2008. And the story showed his life. And very often after, he, he felt that he hadn't run hard enough. He, he broke down crying. And his mother would often come alongside him and say, Don't cry harder, run harder. Or maybe you've had or have a boss for whom your performance is just Never good enough. You see, that's the false God that the Apostle Paul had when he was still Saul when he wasn't converted. Listen to how Paul reflected on his life. Again, in Galatians 1.14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my age, among my people, and I was extremely 
zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And you see, here's, what, here's the God that Paul, who was then Saul, this is what he heard. Come on, Saul. Try harder. Do more. Do better. Go further. Go at it harder. Be better. And this was the view that the view of God that the monk Martin Luther had before his soul was flooded with grace. Martin Luther had a, had a, had a German word to describe all of this. It's a word actually that's actually German and it's untranslatable. And I'll give it to you. It's coming up hopefully on the screen. It's a word called Anfechtung. Now you Aussies have got no chance on trying to get your lips and your tongues around that one. Please say it to me at the door as you come out. Anfechtung. And Fechtung, though, is the image of a God who is an angry, finger-wagging, judgmental, harsh, condemning, aloof, holy God. And Fechtung is then the experience of having, having anxiety of always falling short and never measuring up to an angry God who is just ready to punish you every single time you don't quite meet the performance. And so Martin Luther, before he was converted, he saw God and he saw himself as being on this religious treadmill all the time, running, never stopping, never stopping, going faster and faster and faster, trying to satisfy a God who could never be satisfied. And God was just ready to break out and punish him if he failed. And so Luther just kept on going and going and going. He drove himself almost insane. He was so insecure and fearful of a terrifying holy God. So my first question then is, Satisna est Jesus. Is Jesus enough? The second question is Satisna Susmos, which means, ah, very good, Caroline. Are we enough? Maybe we can answer the first question if we can answer the second question. Are we ever enough? Now, if you could come to the passage, come with me to Isaiah 53, you're going to see that there are three things that verses 4, 5, and 6 point out. Here's three reasons why we are never enough, can never be enough. And the first one is that our thinking is always wrong. Our thinking is wrong. So look at verse 4. I think it's coming up on the screen. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Here's the bit. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Now what that verse is saying is this. Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah came, the Jews in particular would despise and reject him because they would look at the Messiah or they would look at the wannabe Messiah and they would say that he was suffering for his own sin. Look at verse 4. Yet we considered him punished by God. We considered him stricken, him uh, afflicted by God. Isaiah prophesied that the Jews would think about the Messiah in all the wrong ways. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? That's exactly what happened. Take a look at this. Matthew 26, 63. Jesus is in front of the religious bourgeoisie. He's in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. And it says, Jesus remains silent. He is the silent lamb who goes to the slaughter. The high priest said to him, I, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah. Tell us if you are the Son of God. 
And Jesus says, you have said so, Jesus replied. And I, I say to you, all of, all of you now that from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And look how the high priest responds. He says the high priest tore, he tore his clothes. He said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you, what do you think? He is worthy of? The Jewish leaders saw Jesus as worthy of death for all his own sin. And the reason they did that was because they didn't think right about themselves. You see, if you think wrong about yourself, you're going to think wrong about Christ and the cross. How does the world view the sufferings of Christ today? How does the world view the sufferings of Christ today? One, they see the sufferings of Christ as largely irrelevant, right? Number two, they might see it as a symbol of freedom. Number three, if you're religious, then you see the cross of Christ as something you need to do in order to add to it. I wonder if you've realized just how intelligent man is. Have you noticed that? I mean, this is for now. I don't even know what they call these things. Did you know man is so intelligent that he can put a, a thingy-mabob? I don't know what they call it. A, a spaceship, not a spaceship, a, 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 a something on Mars. I mean, how incredible is that? What do they call those things? Is it a what? A rover. That one, that one, that one. Man is so intelligent, he can put a rover on Mars. Man is so intelligent that, that within months, he can figure out a vaccine for a virus like COVID. But the mind-blowing reality is that the world cannot think about sin correctly or its effects. Have a look at verse 4 again. I want you to just notice two words there. He carried our infirmities. It's, it's a Hebrew word that refers to sicknesses. And he carried our sorrow, which is a word that means he carried our pain. Sin, sin causes so much sickness and sin causes so much pain and sorrow that doesn't end. The world feels the pain. The world feels the, the pain and sorrow of sin. But in their, in their uh, foolish intelligence, they can't see where it comes from. And then they try to fix it with religious and secular band-aids. If you understood this verse, if you understood this, you will, you will think straight about the cross. Have a look at it. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. See, the first reason why we can never, ever be enough is because our thinking is all wrong. Our thinking is all wrong about ourselves. And therefore, our thinking is all wrong about Christ and His cross. But there's a second one. In verse 5, it shows us that our actions are wrong. We can never be enough because our actions are wrong. Look at verse 5. Because he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Transgressions has the idea of, 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 of stepping over moral boundaries. Iniquity has to do with moral failure. 
They've both got a very legal ring to them in the Hebrew. It sounds very archaic, but not so long ago, it was common to hear people say, so-and-so has transgressed the, the laws of the land, right? They, they, they've, they've crossed over the boundaries of the law and they need to be punished. Iniquity, it's a word that we just don't really use. We don't really understand. It, it's got to do with moral failure, but better, it's got to do with moral filth. Sin is moral filth which transgresses God's moral boundaries, bringing sorrow and pain. And the iniquitous transgressions of mankind is easy to see, isn't it? Have you seen them? Can I show them to you? I'll give you a list. Here are some of the iniquitous transgressions of mankind. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, drunkenness, hubris, which is pride. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus says all these things come from where? From the human heart. How can we ever, ever be good enough when these things come continuously from the human heart? It is these things that so often come out of our mouths. They come through our fingers. They come through our toes. You see, we can never be good enough because we think wrong, we act wrong. But the reason we think wrong and act wrong, look at this in verse 6. It's because our nature is wrong. Our nature. So look at verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to their own way. The ultimate problem is like we're like sheep. The reason we act wrong, think wrong, is because our natures are wrong, because we're like sheep. Sheep that go astray. And, and, and the problem is, is our nature. Sheep act like sheep. Sheep act according to their nature. Sheep, I'm told, are not very bright. I'm told they're fairly defenseless. They're fairly helpless. In fact, I'm told they're fairly stupid. They don't get into flocks like geese or herds like cows. They've got this built-in tendency to walk away from, from security and safety and provision and wander off into goodness knows where. They've got this internal impulse within them that walks away and walks into everything that is unsafe, unhelpful, and insecure. You see, the problem is we are like sheep. We act according to our nature. Is Jesus enough? Well, oh, oh, what conclusion have you come to? Are we enough? Are we ever enough? Could we ever be enough? So let's uh, go to the third then. Jesus erat sartist, meaning Jesus is enough. He is enough. Now, I'm going to take you through Isaiah again. In fact, I'm going to take you through it twice. I want you to see it. I want you to see that he's enough. Have a look. And I'm, 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 I'm going to insert, if you'll give me a little bit of a license to paraphrase, I'm going to insert one little word into each of the verses and you'll see it. 
You'll see it. So have a look at it with me in verse 4. Surely he took up all our infirmities and he carried all our sorrows. Into verse 5, he was pierced for all our transgressions. He was crushed for all our inequities, our moral filth. And the Lord has laid upon him, verse 6, all the iniquity of us all. And for all the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Verse 11, he will bear all their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore all the sin of many. He made transgressions for all the transgressors. If all is all, then nothing is left out. Then is enough is enough, right? Then Jesus is enough. Because it's all. All. But let me, let me just take you through those some of those verses again and just have a look at this with me. It says he was stricken. He was stricken by God. In other words, he was it, stricken means to be left out. It means to be left off. It means to be abandoned. It says Jesus was, was, was punished. Or, he, or, or some translations, he was smitten by God. It means to be beaten violently. It, to be afflicted means to be humiliated. It means to be degraded. It means to be destroyed. Uh, he was pierced for our transgressions, which refers to a, to a violent death. He was, he was crushed, which means he was trampled. He was battered. He was punished, which is a legal forensic term for, for illegal activity. He was, he, was, he was punished as if he was doing something wrong. His, his, by his wounds means he was lashed. God is holy. God is pure. God is without sin. God is without darkness. He is splendiferous in his, his holy awe and majesty. He cannot and will not tolerate sin. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. But in his severe mercy to those whose nature is warped, whose thinking is warped, whose actions are warped, he struck, he smited, he afflicted, he pierced, he crushed, he wounded, he punished his son so that all that is wrong in us is fully paid in him. Now let me show it to you. Just look at this in verse 6. We're like sheep that have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the moral fault of us all. But, but look at that. Look at the context. The context is that the iniquity is referring into verse 6 and verse 5 and verse 4. So when it says that, that, that the Father laid, laid, laid our iniquity on Christ, it, it, he didn't just lay the sin. He laid the sinfulness. It wasn't just that he laid the sin, but he laid the sinful nature on Christ to be punished fully, completely. Do you think Jesus is enough? So it takes us to our final question. Satisne tebe est, Jesus. So Caroline, come on, give it to me. Caroline, don't disappoint all right, will I see that hand? Oh. You're, 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 a, you're an English teacher, aren't you? Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Is Jesus Christ enough for you? See, could it be this morning? Could it be for you this morning that you're still 
think there's something that you've got to do to be saved. Could it be for you this morning that you're saved by grace, you come to Jesus, you believe in Him, you take His grace, you've accepted the gospel, but what you keep on doing is you keep climbing back onto the religious treadmill, thinking that you've got to keep on doing the religious things, however good they might be, in order to keep yourself saved. And every time that you mess up, every time you sin, you get back on the treadmill saying, I've got to go harder, I've got to go further, I must do better. Instead of remembering and believing that Jesus Christ is enough. Because when we sin and we do and we fail all the time as Christians, it's not I'll do better next time. It's not I'll try harder. It's yes or satis est. It is He is enough. He's enough. He's done it. It's complete. It's finished. There's nothing more I can add. You see, here's the thing. When you... When you when you try to do something to earn salvation or, 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 or you try to do something to keep your salvation, it's like drinking thirstily from an empty cup. But there's nothing in the cup. Why? Because Christ drank it all. He drank all the fury, all the punishment, all the wrath. He drank everything at the cross. There is nothing left for you to drink. All the striking, all the smiting, all the afflicting, piercing, crushing, punishment, and wounding of the Son by the Father was enough. We haven't got a Father in heaven that's looking down on us saying, Come on, do more, try harder, stop crying and work harder. He's not doing that. I've got a father in heaven saying, oh, you just got to keep going and I'll meet you halfway. Our God and Father is not looking for a performance you can't attain. He's not looking for satisfaction you can't meet because the performance of the Son was enough. The Father doesn't want you to be satisfied in anything. He doesn't want you to try harder. He doesn't want you to try and do something, either for salvation or keep it. He wants you to look at His Son. He wants you to be satisfied in Him. He wants you to, he wants you to look at His performance because it was beautiful in its suffering. The Father in heaven is not demanding that we keep on getting onto the religious treadmill waiting for us to collapse in some sort of heap. Do you remember? You'll be familiar with the parable of the, of the prodigal son, right? Luke 15. And do you remember him? He disses his father, despises his father. He goes off into the somewhere and he squanders his life on wild living and Oh, great, he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go back to my father. And, and he goes, as he goes home, we see the father. The father's excited, comes down, grabs him, hugs him, kisses him on the neck. And, and, and the son, do you remember what the son says to the father? Remember what he says? Please take me back as your hired hand. 
So take me back as your son. I'm not worthy to be your son. Take me back as your hired hand. Let me get to the bottom and work myself up. Let me do better. Let me try harder. And what does the father do? He just cuts the whole lot off and grabs and says, let me put the ring on your finger, put the robe on you. Let me, let me get the, the, the fattened calf. Let's have a celebration. Because what was the boy doing? He was running back to not a father, but to a, to a boss who was going to pay him for effort and work. As the famous song goes, we run again and again to our Father. Run to, the, run to the Father. You're not running to a boss. Let me uh, start to close up with these words. Isaiah 55. Let me read them and I'll make a couple of comments. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, but come without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fear. Those words from Isaiah 55, they are not just for those who do not know Christ. Those words are for Christians. Because the greatest danger to our spiritual lives is performance. Because when we get hungry and thirsty, when we fail, we want to eat and drink our performance, our religious performance, instead of eating and drinking Christ at the cross. So would you ponder with this? Would you ponder this with me? Is he enough? It's a good question. That's true. Then that's true. Let's have the music team.